The weather was good, at least as good as it gets on Everest. The temperatures were incomprehensibly low, and the wind was howling, but it wasn't a blizzard. That's a good thing. Robert was alone, taking a rest. The other climbers were near, but were carefully managing their steps on the slick, hard ice. Communication was really difficult. Oxygen masks and high-altitude cognitive apathy make it hard to concentrate, and multitasking is nearly impossible. At high altitude on Everest, you do one thing. You put one foot in front of the other and move forward. You're either moving forward or you're retreating from the mountain. Standing still is like being in an electric chair waiting for them to throw the switch. If you're standing still, you're waiting to die. Robert was well-liked and was quickly becoming a popular member of the group. He hadn't known the others before standing on this particular spot. As one of the climbers turned to call out to Robert, he saw something that he was sure was a high-altitude hallucination. As Robert turned toward the climbers calling his name, he lost his footing on the slick ice. He fell backwards and then slid headfirst down the slope for 40 feet before disappearing over the lip of the mountain and down the 10,000-foot north face. In the blink of an eye, Robert was gone. Yelling his name through the oxygen masks, well, you know it's not helpful, and in a more lucid moment, you would recognize how ridiculous it is. But it's what you felt like you had to do. Somebody you knew was sliding away, and the natural thing to do is to yell out their name. Feeling helpless and not really knowing what else to do, the climber nearest Robert carefully moved down the 40 feet to the lip. To this day, he has no idea why. He knew Robert was gone. There was no chance he hadn't gone down the full 10,000-foot slope. And at that speed and at that distance there would be nothing left to find, let alone see. But he went anyway. What he found was more horrifying than anything he could have expected. Robert was alive, caught by a small bump in the ice. He was on his back, head pointing downhill, and looking upside down at the 10,000-foot abyss he was about to slide into. Blood was rushing into his head, which was already throbbing from the altitude sickness. His oxygen mask had been ripped from his face, and he had a look first of panic and then strangely acceptance. He was slowly sliding down the mountain, and the fear was mixed with knowing there was really nothing anyone can do. As the other climber got near, he realized that he had no ability to help. If he reached down the steep, slippery slope with his hand, Robert's weight and gravity would have pulled both of them down the mountain. Call it a miracle, divine intervention, or good old-fashioned good luck. The climber looked down and saw a half-buried rope in the snow. Digging out the rope, the climber was able to slide it down to Robert, who was then able to tie into one end. With the help of a couple other climbers, they were able to pull Robert back to safety. Robert may very well have been saved by the same faith that Maurice had counted on for so long to keep him safe and assist him to the summit of Everest. Robert's fall was in 1995, 61 years after Maurice was going to test his faith on the same terrain 
and if the same route was followed, he would stand on the very same spot Robert had slipped from six decades in the future. My name is Jeff Bargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode four of season two of the High Adventure podcast. If you're new to this season, you might want to go back and catch up by listening to episodes one, two, and three. Now, I know it's been quite a while between episodes three and four, and I apologize for that, but COVID-19 and a number of other things that went on this spring um, kind of did a number on my schedule. So I'm doing the best I can, and we hope we'll get back on a regular schedule here pretty quickly. If you're new to the High Adventure podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to season one, where we drilled down into the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. That's where a plane carrying 6,000 pounds of smuggled marijuana crashed into a frozen lake in the Yosemite National Park backcountry. If you've never heard that story, I encourage you to check it out. It's a wild one. If you're enjoying these stories, please leave a review for us on any of the podcast platforms that you're listening to this program on. And please, please tell your friends and share this podcast on your social media sites. As always, you can email me at thehighadventurepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at High Adventure Podcast, on Facebook at The High Adventure Podcast, and on Instagram at High Adventure Podcast. We also post these episodes on both our YouTube and Vimeo channels, and both those channels are under our company name of Accidental Productions. And check out our newly relaunched website, accidentalproductions.net, where you can find a lot of other content. If you're trapped indoors and looking for something to watch, take a look at Assault on El Capitan, our film about the second ascent of Wings of Steel, Yosemite's most controversial climb. It's available on Amazon Prime and streaming sites virtually everywhere. The story I told at the top of the show was an account of Greg Child's experience on Everest in 1995. Greg Child is a highly experienced mountaineer, and he's also an author. And this story came out of a compilation he contributed to called Climb, Stories of Survival from Rock, Snow, and Ice. So if you get a chance to pick up that book, uh, along with Greg's story, there is several others that are hair-raising big mountain survival stories. In our last episode, Maurice had everything in place that in his mind would ensure success. He had a modified plane. He had maps and a route. He'd taken flying lessons and earned his license. And after the little mishap of a crash on day one of his trip, his plane was now repaired and ready to head out on a 5,000-mile odyssey that, if successful, would end in him standing on the summit of Mount Everest alone. Put your leather helmet on and strap into the passenger cockpit We're going to the Himalayas. As we discussed previously on the first leg of his journey, Maurice had planned to fly to Bradford to say goodbye to his mother. Crashing just short of the runway was clearly going to be a setback. So 
Instead of seeing his mother, Maurice climbed into the truck that was carrying his plane, and he rode back to London for the immediate repairs on his plane, the Everest. The damage was more extensive than first thought. Maurice was told it would take three weeks to fix the plane. This was devastating news to Maurice, who now might miss the weather window to climb Everest during that couple weeks each year that the mountain is accessible. Maurice told the mechanics to work as fast as they could, and his plan was to fly to India, and if he couldn't make an attempt on Everest during this season, he would use the year for reconnaissance. It would give him more time to plan his mountain landing and his climb. While Maurice was waiting for his plane to be repaired, a couple things happened that he felt might take away from his achievement. A pair of biplanes on a photographic mission had flown over the summit of Everest, giving the world its first look at the top of the world. More concerning was the new British expedition that was being mounted for another large organized summit attempt. This was going to be led by Hugh Rutledge. Rutledge was the fourth choice to lead this expedition after the top three choices were unwilling to risk another Everest attempt. Rutledge was a civil servant and mountaineer who had experience in the logistical knowledge for success. But as Maurice followed the slow progress of the expedition, he knew they would never make the summit. Rutledge's expedition was enormous. 14 climbers, several dozen Sherpas and support personnel, animals, cooks, tents. It was a huge operation. Ultimately, Rutledge's expedition did fail to summit Everest, but they did find the ice axe used by Andrew Irvine, the climber who had disappeared with George Mallory in 1924. The British government eventually ordered Rutledge to abandon the attempt. A post-expedition investigation report by the Mount Everest Committee blamed Rutledge for the failure. They found that Rutledge, though greatly liked and respected, was not an assertive leader. Rutledge could, however, take pride in the fact that everyone in his expedition came home alive, which could not be said for several of the previous British expeditions. All this was good news for Maurice, who would now have the mountain and the glory all to himself. The British press had been covering Maurice's efforts throughout his preparations, but the country was not overly excited. At this point, he was just taken off in a plane. The leg of the trip that would capture the public's imagination was 5,000 miles away on the slopes of the most unforgiving place on earth. Maurice never did get a chance to visit his mother before he left. He'd gone quickly back to London with his plane before meeting her. But the press did have time to meet with her, and she poured out all the fear and emotion you would expect from a worried mother. She said, and I quote, I have one great fear. His left arm is practically useless. I keep asking myself, can it stand the strain? He can't carry anything heavy with it. I'm terribly worried about the oxygen apparatus he'll have to carry. I'm afraid it might be too heavy. When asked if she believed her son could climb Mount Everest alone, she just said, My son is a very brave man. We've discussed Maurice's war injuries and the problems he had with his left arm, but his mother's words are the first time we learn how truly damaged his body really was from the war. I've read varying accounts of Maurice's life and adventures, but this is the first and only time it was mentioned that in all practicality, Maurice had no use of his left arm. If you haven't thought this story was extreme to this point, 
I think you're going to have to reevaluate that opinion. While waiting for his plane to be repaired, Maurice set a new departure date of May 21st. The Air Ministry had hoped that Maurice's crash would dampen his enthusiasm for what they were sure was an unintended suicide mission. They sent Maurice a letter alerting him that his plan was, to them, not acceptable. In the letter, the Deputy Director of Civil Aviation, FGL Bertram, wrote, I am directed to refer to your proposed flight to Purnia, India, and return in the Haviland Moth aeroplane. In this connection, I am to inquire whether recent reports which have appeared in the press that after arrival at Purnia you propose to fly to and land upon the slopes of Mount Everest have any foundation. I am to point out that previous permission of the government of Nepal is required for flight over the territory and you will not be permitted to fly from Purnia across the frontier into Nepal unless such permission has been obtained. The Air Ministry consider it unlikely that the Nepalese government would grant permission for you to fly over their territory to Mount Everest. Maurice responded with his own letter a few days later, reminding them that the flying expedition over Everest was currently going on. Those flights seemed to Maurice to be the de facto permission he needed to go forward. The Air Ministry responded with a more pointed letter, feeling that Maurice had missed the point. Their response was, It is evident that you have completely misunderstood the position. Recent flights had Nepalese government permission through negotiations with the government of India. The government of India has asked us to relay to you that you will not receive permission to fly from Purnia across the frontier, and it is impossible for the Air Ministry to give you any encouragement involving the Nepalese territory. They were politely telling Maurice not to go, and he was on his own if he got in trouble. When a reporter asked him about the Air Ministry's response, Maurice said, quote, The gloves are off. I'm going on as planned. Stop me? They haven't got a chance. The Air Ministry sent Maurice one last telegram forbidding him to go. Maurice tore it up and climbed into his plane. It's important to know that Maurice was a decorated World War I veteran. We talked about this quite a bit. He gave a large part of his life and his health, both mental and physical, to his government. When his country called him to serve, he gladly did what they asked. But now, 15 years later, his government asks him to stop doing something, and he seems to have nothing but disdain for their messages or their orders. Is this just maturity, or is this a resentment he developed for a government that sent him to die and now thinks it's too dangerous for him to fly to another country and climb a mountain? I think it's quite something what governments choose to do and say to their citizens. Is this hypocrisy or genuine concern? I think Maurice's response to the last telegram clearly articulated his opinion. So on a bright, clear day at Stag Lane Field, a large crowd of friends, members of the press and photographers were gathered to witness what at least Maurice thought was the start of a historic journey. Truthfully, most came out because they thought it was literally the last time they were going to see their friend. But the crowd was excited and spirits were high. Well-known British pilot and author Nigel Tangy was there, wearing a flight jacket that Maurice had given him the night before. The famous pilot Jean Batten was there. Jean was the best-known New Zealander of the 1930s. She'd recorded a number of record-breaking flights and in 1936 was the first person to fly solo from England to New Zealand. 
And, of course, Leonard and Enid Evans were there. Enid tied a small ribbon onto one of the wing struts, just for luck, she said. Maurice carried with him a silk pennant that all his friends had signed. He called it the Flag of Friendship. All very, very melodramatic if you were trying to picture this in a movie or written in a novel. As he climbed into the cockpit, he shouted out that they should not worry if they didn't hear from him for a couple days. Maurice then fired up the engine and the ground crew kicked out the wheel chocks. The excited crowd waved as Maurice swung the plane around and flew into the wind. And as we talked previously, he flew the wrong direction down the runway and barely was able to lift off and he missed the hedgerow at the end of the runway by just a couple of feet. But he made it. It was up. It was in the air. And the crowd watched quietly, though, as the plane grew smaller in the sky and flew toward the horizon, eventually becoming just a spot in the sky and then disappearing altogether. Maurice Wilson, despite what seemed to be a series of questionable decisions, was a very competent person, as I've tried to describe throughout this story. He was simply unafraid to jump into unfamiliar surroundings and experiences. In doing research for this story, there are conflicting accounts about Maurice's skill as a pilot. Now, it's undisputed that he lacked mountaineering skills. But while some discount his flying skills, others praise them. Where does that type of evaluation come from? Some sources talk about his meticulous planning and route development, but at the same time, he crashed on a short flight to visit his mother and took off going the wrong way when leaving on his trip. Can enthusiasm and determination be substituted for competence and expertise? I personally don't think over-enthusiasm and overconfidence help someone achieve what they're capable of. As a kid, I loved baseball. I played my entire life and into college and in high-level leagues all over the place. I had confidence and enthusiasm. I loved playing baseball and wanted nothing more than to play professional baseball. But I didn't, and I'm not a professional baseball player. Many told me I was good or even a great baseball player. But the people who really knew and understood, the professional scouts, the teams, they said I was just okay at baseball. No one wants to really listen to the critical voices, but often they're the only real ones telling the truth. Not achieving a long-held personal goal can be hard to live with. There's a certain amount of shame that happens, I think. When you work so long and so hard for something and others watch you work hard and watch you strive to achieve a goal that when you don't achieve that goal, you feel like others are judging you in some way. In fact, most people never have the courage to truly put themselves out on the line for a difficult-to-achieve goal. In reality, people are mostly self-involved, and if your goal doesn't match or parallel their own, they don't really give it too much thought. So people watch from afar, but in my experience, our own disappointments are truly our own. Others don't really feel anything unless they are in direct competition with our goals. My confidence and enthusiasm make me a tremendous baseball fan, but I never achieved what at one point was my life's goal, and no one has ever said anything to me about not achieving that goal of playing professional baseball. 
In my opinion, Maurice wasn't a great pilot, and he clearly wasn't a mountaineer of any experience or repute. But he was a very good businessman. I think that discipline and success in business gave him the confidence that he could succeed at anything he tried. And his time in the military gave him the organizational skills and pragmatism needed to set a goal and single-mindedly set out to achieve that goal regardless of the danger. Keep in mind he had never really failed at anything in his life, even the plane crash he walked away from. In the war, when others died, he walked or limped away, but he survived. Every business he worked in or owned was a success. Why would this be any different? The things we now take for granted were futuristic unknowns in 1933. The use of radios, accurate weather forecasts for the route, and the well-supplied stopover destinations were all unavailable at that time. Today, no one gives a second thought to airplane inspections or refueling and maintenance stations for planes. But in 1933, the number of airports that could inspect or repair a plane were few and far between, and I mean really far between. During Maurice's entire 5,000-mile trip, he was only able to have his plane inspected for reliability and safety twice. That added a lot of uncertainty and danger to this flight. The fuel was also suspect in most places. Several times during refueling stops, the fuel came out of rolled rusty containers, and it was not the sufficiently high octane necessary for the Everest to fly safely. During most of the trip, Maurice was muffled up in layers of clothing and cramped into the open cockpit, listening anxiously to the sputtering and unhappy engine that was flying on the wrong fuel and flying by a rough compass course. Navigation was mostly looking down from the airplane at the endless terrain and navigating by sight. These days, people use GPSs and apps to find parking places at the mall. And then they thank God when they find a spot closer to the store. Maurice never thanked God. He just simply had the faith that God was watching out for him and all would be well. The ice, especially in the shade, was hard, slippery, but Maurice was making progress. Very soon, a strong and somewhat depressing fatigue overwhelmed him. Maurice was feeling the effects of glacial lassitude, which is a state of extreme physical and mental weakness. Rutledge had written about lassitude when describing his previous expedition. Rutledge wrote, the sole disadvantage of climbing in these troughs within the glacier is the presence of stagnant air which brings on an extraordinary and devitalizing lassitude. According to climbers who've navigated these glacial troughs, you might be going along well on the open glacier and be congratulating yourself on your fitness. Five minutes later in the trough, you can hardly put one foot in front of the other. Maurice's struggles were only just beginning. It began to snow. He struggled on hour after hour, 
following one false lead after another, slipping and falling constantly, but somehow managing to avoid the half-hidden crevasses that littered the ice field. A fall into any of these crevasses and Maurice would have disappeared forever. At three o'clock, he decided to pitch his tent and make camp for the night. In six hours, he had covered three-quarters of a mile and climbed 250 feet. His diary entry for the day just said, Another hellish day. Maurice headed south-southeast and across the English Channel on the first leg of the trip, and he landed in Freiburg, Germany, as planned, and spent the evening with friends. The distance between London and Freiburg is about 430 miles by air. These days, you can drive between London and Freiburg in about 12 hours, or take a short 90-minute flight for about 150 bucks. But in 1933, without filed flight plans... Civil air controls or radio communication, flying 430 miles in a biplane was a risky proposition. The next morning, Maurice was up early and on to the next leg of his journey. He set out for Paso, a small city on the Austrian border where he could refuel and for the first time see the vast semicircle of the Austrian Alps, which were shrouded in clouds. Maurice refueled and took off climbing to 8,000 feet and quickly disappearing into the clouds. After 48 hours of no sightings or contact, the newspapers filled with pessimistic stories of Maurice and the Everest. Articles talked of inquiries being made in Paso and Freiburg for news of Maurice, but all inquiries, according to newspapers, had proven fruitless. The Daily Express asked in a story, Has Maurice Wilson the novice airman who set out to plant a Union Jack on Mount Everest suffered the fate of Bert Hinkler, who was killed in a crash during his flight to Australia from London? Remember, no communication from plane to ground, and the first leg of his journey was taking him over water in sparsely populated areas. But Maurice was, in fact, just fine. When the clouds thickened at 8,000 feet, he dropped to 7,000 and circled for a bit to try to burn fuel so he could be light enough to get to 9,000 and above the clouds. When that didn't work, he went to the backup plan, and that had him flying at about 3,000 feet in clear skies and skirting the fringes of the Alps. Flying over Lake Geneva and heading south, Maurice passed by the Austrian, French, Swiss, and French Alps and on into Marseille. In Pisa, the Aeronautica Italiana welcomed him with a hero's dinner, with local pilots signing the fuselage of the Everest. The newspapers soon got up to speed on Maurice's change of route and were back on the story. The Daily Mail reported, Mr. Maurice Wilson of the London Aero Club, who is flying to Mount Everest, is safe. Maurice was more than safe. He was cruising along very nicely, getting attention and admiration all along the way. From Pisa, it was a two-hour flight to Rome, and the Everest was due for its 50-hour maintenance checkup. The plane was serviced, and he was off to Naples to have lunch, and he sat down in Sicily for the night. The next leg was going to be flying over the Mediterranean and searching for the African coast. The clouds were low and hovering about 
500 feet. Maurice tried to fly up and above the clouds and got above the clouds at about 9,000 feet, but he found that flying without oxygen was tough, and not to mention the temperatures that he faced with the open cockpit were frigid. He descended to about 300 feet and flew all day at that elevation until hitting Cape Bon in northern Tunisia, and shortly after landed in Bizerta. The Everest needed refueling. Maurice had no plans to stick around Tunisia, but instead of a group of well-wishers, Maurice climbed out of his plane to a group of local police who quickly informed him he was not welcome and that he could not refuel his plane. He was to take off immediately. Maurice flew a short distance to Tunis where he found some rusty barrels of fuel. Not really knowing what they were or who they belonged to, he stealthily filled his plane and took off. Flying across the Mediterranean was a challenge and would be horrifying for any novice pilot, but the mental crux of the trip was flying across the vast wasteland of North Africa. Long distances of uninhabited and waterless desert made this section perhaps the most dangerous. With so much terrain all looking the same, careful attention to the compass and route finding was critical. A forced or unplanned landing in this region would be certain death. Maurice listened closely to the engine of his plane. He'd filled the tanks with an unknown type of fuel from rusty barrels. He had no idea what damage he had done, if any, but so far so good. As he approached the Libyan border, the engine began to cough and sputter. Next came a loud and violent knocking that shook the whole plane. It sounded as if someone was inside his motor with a hammer. He limped through the sky like a flying bass drum, but he somehow managed to land, and as he was taxiing, the engine coughed one last time and finally shut down. In our next episode, Maurice gets the Everest repaired, and he's off on the rest of his journey. How far will he make it? It seems as though his faith has carried him this far. Will luck or the power of faith get him where he wants to go? Because it's clear he's counting on faith more than skill and competence. Thanks for listening. Lying on his deathbed watching the picture show. The product of the night. And some smoke A boomer's tricks And a woman's